Um, Dean, are you with us? I'm here. All right. With us now is, is Mr. Dean Reeves. Um, Mr. Reeves was the uh, owner, or primary owner of Mucho Macho Man, who won the, uh, among other things, the Breeders' Cup Classic uh, a few years ago. Uh, thank you for, for joining us. Oh, look forward to it. Then how are you doing, Chuck? Ah, no complaints. Uh, it's been a little crazy. I, I tell you what, time uh, or excuse me, one thing that uh, ha- having a horse racing, you know, radio slash podcast uh, the last ten days, there's certainly been no lack of uh, storylines to to talk about. That's for sure. Isn't that the truth? Uh, yesterday was nuts. I mean, it, it was it was crazy when the Linda Rice news came down, and I mean that thing has been going on for years now. Um, and then not too long after that, uh, Dave Grenning, and this is where I saw it, tweeted out that, that uh, Mr. Baffert has been temporarily suspended and denied access to the grounds of Naira, which really kind of like threw things into a tizzy. And uh, and then even later on, um, you know, finding out that poor Ron McAnally got a positive for CBD oil and uh, Richard Mandela had a got got fined for a, a, a slight overage. So it, it was kind of a nutty day. Yeah, yeah. It was, um, you know, I mean, I think these um, these tracks and uh, jurisdictions are, um, you know, having to make a stand. You know, people sometimes, I think, get the issue gets a little confused as to what the role of the racing commission is versus the role of the racetrack. Now, uh, and even yesterday was a perfect example. And sometimes, especially in social media, people kind of get things like mixed up. And originally when the, the Linda Rice news came out, a lot of people were like, oh, this is racing, you know, uh, Baffert gets away with it and, and Linda Rice gets three years. And I'm like, well, they're completely different topics, you know, and um, the Linda Rice deal is has been in the um, the, the racing commission's a purview for for years as as it is and and it's 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 actually a legal matter where the Baffert thing is is kind of I mean the truth of the matter is uh, when you really think about it Baffert's positive test in the Kentucky Derby it's not even a, a, a positive test and the Kentucky Racing Commission doesn't even um you know ha- hasn't even been able to comment on it because you know the split sample has never been sent out right right no you're right it, it is it's two different um you know, if you want to turn violations, but the way it's being handled. But one is the one for Linda's been, uh, I think, going on two years uh, since two, that. 2018 yeah, is up. when it started. Two, can you imagine? 2018. And and it some is, of the I mean, issues. It's is hard for the casual fan to keep up with that, even for us that are in it, <sighs> as to, you know, who's actually, um, you know, in charge of making some sort of decision with regard to that particular violation. Uh, and you know that that does make it difficult. Now, let me ask you from your point of view, because you you've got many different trainers, and and you have you know partners on horses, and and you you know you buy horses uh, in various different different ways. Um, what's your take personally on? Um, and I'm not asking you to name names or, or, or make accusations or do anything, actually. I'm just saying, like, how do you feel, and I don't know if this has ever even happened to you, but when one of your horses comes up with a with a positive test, um, like, what is, you know, how, how do you go about handling that? Well, I've never had a horse come up with a positive test. 
uh, with any of the trainers that I've used. And since I've been in this now 11 years, and, and we've never had a, a positive test anywhere. So, um, look, if, if it happens and it is uh, a positive test, we're, uh, I think you find out uh, what happened, who it was. Um, and, of course, it depends on certainly some of, of what drug we're talking about and, and all of that sort of thing. But we're going to own up to it if, if it does happen, and we're going to um, uh, straighten it out with regard to either the process or the trainer. And if there's a fine involved or disqualification um, and we have a positive, then, then we're just going to accept the matter and move on. Right. Now, how would you, uh, again, I, I'm, I'm kind of asking you questions that are theoretical in nature because you haven't had any positive uh, a test. Um, I had a positive test myself training in 2002, I think, uh, for ACE Promazine uh, in Kentucky, which was kind of ironic considering at that time in Kentucky, um, ACE Promazine was literally the only thing you get positive for. Uh, they were allowing so many legal medications within 24, 48 hours of, of the of the um, the race that the, it was it was kind of difficult to do it. And 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 we uh, we got a we were slight overage of ACE Promazine, which is a tranquilizer, and it's used, um, you know, to to ship horses uh, to shoe them sometimes when when they just you know they're they're agitated and it's very very commonly used. Um, sure. But um, you know the, the process was we we, we were notified. And I'll be honest, it was about six weeks after we raced. It was from a race at Keeneland that our horse won by, I think, 10. So she, um, uh, what was her name? I can't remember her name. But um, I remember she was by Skywalker. You know, it's crazy. I can remember, like, the pedigrees of the horses. I can't remember their names. I think that's just <laughs> old age. But, um, you know, we got the, the, the notification and they asked us, uh, they said, you know, do you want to send a split sample out? And we did. We sent it to LSU and Mr. Barker, uh, Dr. Barker did the split sample for us and, and he, he verified it. And he, you know, he, I talked to him that day about, uh, about things. I, I had only been training a couple of years and he was explaining to me how, uh, back then the system was, was even more screwed up than it is now that in Louisiana, the cutoff was a hundred nanograms, which is which is a lot more than picograms, which is what we're dealing with Baffert. And at the time, Kentucky's was ten. So uh, just these two states that I raced in had had a, a huge difference in uh, in the allowable levels, um, which which I I didn't even know and and at at the time and um, you know because the split was verified, I, I went uh, in front of the stewards and. And we had a hearing, and um, they gave me, I think, 10 days or 15 days um, suspension. And, of course, the purse was redistributed, uh, and that was it. And, and I never had another positive again. I, I had a, a positive in a, in a race at Turfway 15 years later or 12 years later, but the, it was a mistake on the lab's part, and had I hired a lawyer, we, we would have certainly beat it. And they wound up just giving us all fines because it was that that cleaned things up on their end. And you know, for me, what am I going to do? Hire a lawyer and spend you know five thousand dollars to fight a a, a two hundred fifty dollar fine? It doesn't make any sense. Right. But I, I've seen firsthand how the process that we have, the system we have, 
is a little bit screwed up. And, you know, uh, one of the things that I've really been, um, let, let me just say, I want the HISA law to work. I want it to be great. But the thing I'm skeptical about is that I just hope that they, um, they take into consideration the views of an, of a wide variety of people so that all of the potential issues can be, uh, accounted for before they put the law in effect. And, 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 you know, I, I just don't, I just hate to have, uh, uh oh, you know, this kind of got screwed up because I, I'm not Bob Baffert and I'm not a guy who could have spent the amount of money to, uh, to fight some of these cases. Um, you know, and, and it's almost kind of an unjust thing in that the smaller trainers can't really fight and the bigger trainers can fight, um, literally till the state runs out of will. Well, that's true, but look, you're taking it that the, the jurisdiction that's doing the testing is wrong, uh, by the fact that people want to fight it. Well, I'd quite frankly take the other view. Um, you know, the, the, um, can the testing always be improved? Um, sure. That's why they do a split sample. Um, but, you know, I traveled over to Japan and went to their races over there. And let me tell you something. They're a lot stricter than we are over here. And I think they are, in, in fact, in, in uh, Europe. But, you know, over there, I mean, the horse doesn't – he wins. He doesn't go to the winter circle. He goes back there and gets tested. Uh, and then they bring him to the winter circle. Jockeys are restricted uh, the evening before the race that they are uh, can't have a cell phone with them, and they go stay in a you know in an apartment complex. So they have a lot further and detailed testing than we have. But I got to tell you, I think the industry, the fact that we are uh, catching some of the folks that are cheating, and a lot of us in in ownership positions and even trainers and so forth. We, we have an understanding of who's pushing the envelope out there. And, and I think, um, you know, if a person is um, found in violation, they have their, uh, you know, rights to uh, go through the process that's available to them. But I think the fact that we are catching these people with these uh, violations means we're doing something right, that we're getting this a little bit better. We've got to, is it perfect? No, but it is better. And, you know, the fact that the FBI came in and and got a group of about 25 or 30 people that were in a major involvement uh, in violations and what they were doing, that was a happy day for me. I was thrilled. And I've told people that, that, um, I'd like to see more of that. And some of the hard part is that, you know, the tracks themselves that are trying to monitor this and the testing agencies, they don't quite have the the big gorilla behind them like an FBI does that could tap phones and do a lot more. And quite frankly, the tougher it is, I think the better it is because there are plenty of trainers out there that have never had one violation in 20, 25 years of their career. 
So I just don't accept the fact that it can't be done. Um, and so that's, that's just sort of how I feel about it. No, I, I think that uh, I think you and, 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 and I and many other people feel very similar in that um, the excuses get old. Uh, I remember I was in a debate maybe a couple, maybe a couple of two years ago, and the trainer, who's a bigger trainer, and he starts a lot of horses, and his comment to me was, well, I think the bigger trainer should get more leeway because we start a lot more horses, so there's a lot more chances that you know we get, we get caught. And I said, <laughs> you, you really expect me to, to, to agree with that? I said, the zero tolerance for these issues is how we have to be. Um, yes, a mistake can always be made. It's, it's always possible that a mistake is made. But you can't have seven mistakes a year or something like no. that. You know, and, and, uh, you know, my thought process went right to if you want to be bigger and you want to make that more, you know, that extra revenue and, 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 and win more races, well, you also have to accept the risk. It, it, you know, there's a risk reward with everything. And the more horses you have, well, obviously, the more horses you're going to have tested, which means the more opportunities that something will be uncovered. But that means you should be doubly careful. And, you, you know, you should instruct your staff to be doubly careful. And, uh, and I think that's the one thing that, that really has uh, upset industry insiders, backside people with the Baffert situation is that he has the funds to do this properly. He has the ability to be careful. I mean, he said he was going to hire a person to do all these things, you know, uh, to oversee it. The, the person, the veterinarian from uh, one of the Haggard Davis, I believe, which was really kind of overkill. You, you just have to be more careful. And um, Well, I mean, it's, it's you know, I, I, and I revert back to, you know, my business experience and stuff that, Listen, when being in the contracting business, we can't go out there and be unsafe and have 10 or 15 OSHA violations. We're not going to last very long. Owners aren't going to use us. Uh, they don't want us building a project for them if we've got workers getting injured or killed on the project. And I can't sit there and, and say, oh, well, gee, um, you know, I, I didn't know that that was going to be a, a problem that the guy was up there with no tie-off and he fell off the building. Um, th- these excuses are have gotten old, and if the other trainers are getting it done for 20 and 25 years without violations, it shows that it can be done. And the zero policy, you, ca- you can't decide what you were talking about with that trainer that, okay, in the NBA, it's a zero policy unless this is your best player. Right. You know, if, if it's your best player, then, you know, we're going we're gonna, to, you know, adjust accordingly. Uh, or if you're if you're right in the middle of a playoff game, uh, we'll we'll make a change there. Uh, they, it can't it doesn't work that way. And we've seen this in every sport. You saw it in in uh, cycling. You saw it in the NBA. You saw it in Major League Baseball. Uh, the NFL had to start doing random testing. So it's everywhere. It's not just horse racing. And you haven't seen anybody come out there and say. We're, we're going to have rules, but we're going to adjust them depending on the circumstances. That doesn't work. So uh, horse racing, uh, 
we've got to clean it up. I think they are working toward it. We have a, a you know the new commission coming in next year with regard to um, you know the, the new act of federal government. But whatever we got to do, and look, some of these trainers. What gets me is when they take a horse that all of a sudden goes from being a you know finishing third or fourth and getting beat ten lengths in a race. And then a month later, they win by 15 and break a track record. Um, you know, that starts to get old when you see that kind of stuff happening. And the only thing we can do is have stringent testing. And in due time, in due course, uh, they get caught. And, you know, I think it, unfortunately right now uh, we're, we're going through some growing pains. No doubt. I, I've told this to... <laughs> to regulars before I said uh, the drug problem in this business isn't really the minor violations the drug problem is when a guy takes a horse that's running 52 buyers and magically starts running 85 buyers I go that's right. and they're not going to find any violations because those guys rarely get them so um, because you're not you're not testing for what they're using and you don't know i said but the fact of the matter is the people out there betting on the races and the other trainers and the other owners they don't believe it's legitimate so there i said there's your drug problem because there's nobody having that has a magic wand that just waves it over a horse and all of a sudden your horse can run three seconds faster and yes there are times that you can take a horse from a different connection to different trainers and, and maybe try a different philosophy or a different way of training them or change your shoes or or do something different yes there's always a different way of doing it and you just can't do it on a consistent basis you know you can't do it with 75 percent of the horses you get magically run you know 20% faster. It just doesn't, it defies the laws of logic. And, and I think that is, is what you're saying. And I think that's one of the things that, that really kind of aggravates the betters is that um, they see things that they're not sure they believe. And, you know, people are more paranoid these days than ever. And people have a harder time in, in, in regular society believing what they hear you know oh this right. is this is right this is okay you know what you're seeing is actually uh, okay because we said so people are, are are not is willing to believe um the news they're not willing to believe uh, government entities and and in racing is no different than that so when like you said mysteries when you see a guy claim a horse or or, or buy, buy a horse and and all of a sudden they're they're just running off the screen you just shake your head and it's frustrating for me as a participant in the industry for my whole life, basically, to know that the stewards aren't going to call that guy up and say, hey, what's the deal? How did this happen? How you tell me, what did you do? What did you change? How is it possible that this horse, you know, uh, you know, you, you got to have some sort of explanation, right? You can't just say, well, I don't know. They just magically got better when, when they got in my barn. And and that's that's one of the things. And Pat Cummings on the Thoroughbred uh, from the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation is doing a great series um, that's a 12-part series. And unfortunately, this crazy thir- you know, this crazy Triple Crown has kind of um, overshadowed his series because it's hard to get uh, any traction news-wise you know, other than, than 
you know what's going on in the, the Kentucky Derby and now the Preakness and 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 now this, but uh, uh, he you know makes a lot of really salient points in that series. And if you haven't seen it, I, I would advise anyone out there uh, to check it out. The Thoroughbred Ideas Foundation. It's a it's a twelve part series. They've done eleven today. Was the he he released the eleventh part of that series and. Uh, there's a lot of really great stuff, and it's also a lot of stuff that kind of makes you, um, you know, makes you cringe a little bit because some of the betting issues, uh, some of the the wagering and the pools, the integrity of the pools, the ability to, for people to get in our pools, um, it doesn't seem to be, uh, it doesn't seem like there's that many safeguards. And uh, I don't know if you've personally read it, but uh, I, I, check it out. It, it's a good read, and and um, you know, uh, Pat's one of Pat's uh, suggestions today was that HISA, there is language in this law that they can oversee the wagering pools as well. And I can tell you one thing: if it's found out that people are betting after the race has gone off, and I know people see the odds changes, and some of that, is, you know, most of that is because the money's coming in so late because virtually nothing's on track anymore. But that is the quickest way to kill us. Um, you know, we have to protect our pools, and the betters have got to be protected as well because um, that—that's just an integrity issue that's uh, that's going to be very, very difficult to overcome. Well, I think I think the industry needs to spend uh, or put more emphasis on the better and the owner. Uh, you know, because we're the ones that, uh, that get this thing going. The betters uh, provide the, the purse money and, and, you know, or the engine that drives this thing, and the, and the owners are putting the product out there. Uh, I think the tracks can, can be tougher and do spot checks. We do it here at our business. I mean, we, we go in and do um, random testing. They do random testing in the other major sports. I think if you feel like a there's a horse out there that a week ago was a 52 buyer and then runs an 88 buyer, you know, a couple of weeks from there, go in there and, and uh, spot check every horse in there. But I think what happens is they sit there and go, well, you know, if I go get this guy and, and tell him he's got to leave, he takes 20 horses from him, then I can't fill my races. Um, and, and so, you know, th- to me, that's the wrong way to look at it because the horses will come and the industry will be better for it. So, you know, sometimes my frustration is that they just not, um, they just don't go down there and take care of business when they know people are doing things and they just don't take care of it. I, I agree so much, uh, so wholeheartedly with, with what you're saying. And I have always thought that that was a poor excuse on the tracks part of saying that, well, if, if, you know, this guy leaves, then we lose his horses because I, I was in a situation at Monmouth park. Uh, this is 2014 and I had about, I don't know, 25 horses. Um, and Navarro at the time was just winning everything. I mean, just literally winning everything. Right. And my owners got to the point where if we drew in a race with him, they told me to scratch and they, they you know, they were not like, this wasn't a suggestion scratch. I don't want to run against him. We can't beat him. And, uh, I don't want to waste a race. And, and I got it. I mean, 
you own the horse. You know, you put the money up to buy the horse. You put the money up to take care of the horse, and it's it's your property. And I think that um, as such, the owners certainly uh, have the ability to to put pressure um, on the racetracks to you know to make sure that the races are are, are fairly run and. Um, it, to me, I, I always said, if you, that one guy do that to your tracks, because I wasn't the only, uh, you know, the only trainer that had owners that it felt like that. So if, you know, if you get rid of that guy, you'll probably get 10 new trainers coming in because they, they're, they're not coming here because they don't want to run against him. You're exactly right. And I don't know why the tracks can't figure that out because I, I got, when he was running, I'm, I'm not going to Monmouth and, and go up there and put horses in there and, and uh and get beat every time and so what do all those trainers do they leave and go to other tracks where these guys are not racing but yet the track can't figure that out and that's just common sense it's so, it's uh it's so true um, I, I mean if, if they just exactly what you said if they clean that up for every horse that left or didn't race they'd probably get three in their place and they would solve their own problems and and be running a better ship no doubt, and uh, and uh, listen, I don't want to just pick on Mammoth, but th- there's other tracks that that have have kind of done the same thing, and and you know the the too big to fail t- stables where they just keep giving guys stalls and keep giving guys stalls and keep giving guys stalls, and then you know the smaller trainers have to beg for a stall or or two. Uh, the smaller trainers aren't allowed to ship out if they you know to 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 possibly go win a race to you know to help them keep their head above water. And, uh, you know, the bigger guys can do it because what can they do? And um, to me, I think that is one of the biggest things that happened with this Naira deal yesterday was that they stood up to a big trainer. And that has just not been – that has not that, happened in this business for a long time where a track it, – It hadn't happened since I've been in the business Yeah, for 11 years, that they have stood up because they are fearful that – you know, the number of horses or the fact that this is a top, quote, top trainer, and they cannot keep going down that road. If I let um, somebody at our office, and we have 400 employees, uh, because somebody's a, uh, you know, let's say a big salesperson or whatever and a vice president, and they uh, go against our uh, policies and so forth, if we don't do something, the other 399 are going the wrong direction. Absolutely. So do you sacrifice one for 399? No, you can't do that. And sometimes it's tough to do. Um, but you've got to maintain uh, whatever your policy is. And if these tracks, which I think they all ought to get together and, and tighten up everything they do and, and work together rather than, than sideways with each other, um, and if one track, if, it, if that person uh, is, is not allowed on that track, I think they ought to, every other track ought to do the same thing. I mean, yeah. if the guy's cheating and, and it's confirmed, and, and I'm not just saying Bob Baffert or anybody else, on any of these things, you, you, you know, you've got to maintain consistency throughout. I, uh, I can't agree more. And, uh, I mean, just there, I made a comment a couple of weeks ago about the the stake races, about how many graded stake races we have in this country. In that, 
every weekend it seems like we see more and more and more three and four and five horse stake races, stake races, you know, and uh, it's got to be. I said, you know, one of the problems is that all of the same people have all of the good horses, <laughs> and right. they're, they're not willing to run against each other in a lot of ways because, um, you know, people have egos and and. Uh, it's sometimes it seems like that we've gone too far in in allowing the bigger trainers to control the races more than the owners themselves. And that, um, you know, it doesn't, if the tracks would work together a little bit, we've had a couple scenarios down in South in South Florida last winter where Tampa and Gulfstream ran similar stake races uh, the same day. (laughs) So what happened was that there's only X amount of, you know, really quality stake horses for each given class, right? So they would enter in both, and then, you know, half of them would choose one and half of them would choose another. So you have two tracks that are running stake races with short fields instead of, you know, trying to attempt to work together and maybe, you know, fix the schedule where one month this track got it and the other month the other track got it. And and both times you had, uh, you know, better betting races, handle more money, and, 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 and make them, you know, viable races. and. I mean, when we have greatest stakes that have four horses in them, that's not a good thing. That's a problem. Well, we had to ship up to Maryland to get a race for um, our horse, Frosted Grace, because the horses aren't at, at Gulfstream Park uh, that fit that condition. They couldn't get the stake race to go. Uh, so we had to ship up there to, to run, and we may be faced with other uh, times that we've got to ship because the horses aren't there. And, um, you know, that makes it, that makes it difficult. And certainly we don't need to be running the same race at two tracks that aren't that far apart on the same day. There, this, this business has a huge problem that no one's talking about. No one's talking about it. And that is that there's a horse shortage. It's, it's already here. And I think, and I have no actual numbers or facts to prove it. I, I just don't have the capabilities of, of, doing of having the you know the information available to me to do this research but i think a lot of horses last year when we went into the covid kind of shutdowns in the beginning um not necessarily the people that are they're ultra wealthy i mean those people are are, are not really going to be affected they're not gonna have to sell their horses but i think a lot of people in the the restaurant business and the entertainment business, uh, maybe people that own gas stations or saw real big economic downturns i think a lot of horses um, wound up going back to the trainer or, you know, got taken out of training. And of course, more, more, maybe a little more on the lower end, but I don't think that people realize because most of the time, uh, people just concentrate on the tracks that they have horses at or, or that they, you know, they pay attention to, but the finger lakes up in, up in Western New York, they, they've had four or five horse races um, Charlestown, four or five horse races. West Virginia, four or five horse races. Uh, Churchill Downs the other day had three or four or five horse races. Naira opened up the card Sunday with a three horse race. Uh, California, they've had they've had four horse carded stakes, carded, not not like scratched down to. There was four horses in the entry box. Um, right. So there, there's already a, a horse situation. shortage. There's no question about it, and you know we got to go back to the to the breeders and figure out how to get them to, you know, to uh, get more of these mares. Uh, and the breeding would help the entire industry. We could get uh, 
more mares to the to the stallions and eventually get more horses and get them in the gate to race. Let me ask you a question. Um, from your standpoint as an owner, what would be a, a, an incentive for you to have more horses? And how many horses do you currently have uh, total? I mean, race horses, not, not broodmares. Um, currently, uh, 60 horses and, you know, a fair amount of them are in partnerships. Right. Um, but... Okay, you have a lot, <laughs> but what would a normal person like? What would you, what would you consider a, a, an incentive beyond just purses? Because purses is, is, is always the easiest thing to say. But beyond just uh, purses, what, what, you know, what kind of incentives do you think could be used to try to get people more interested in ownership? I think um, it would be maybe something for homebreds. So if if I as an owner um, then instead of having all racehorses go in there and let's say I had 15 brood mares and, and started racing my homebreds, that maybe there was some incentive for that. Mm-hmm. And then I think, um, you know, the, the, the states uh, with the breeders awards, you know, get those where, where it's, um, uh, it's more and more money in the breeders awards for the smaller farms and so forth that maybe they could justify um, going out there and giving them some sort of incentive to buy more mares and breed them. Mm-hmm. Now, whether that's in tax breaks or um, the fact that they buy a mare and get it in foals, that they get, um, you know, maybe they get 20% or 30% of the cost of the stallion uh, or some, you know, amount of, maybe they get a $5,000 um, stipend for just getting a mayor in full. Uh, you know, so it, I think it's got to start in that area, but I hadn't given this a lot of thought. That's not, not been my area of expertise. <laughs> no, no, I actually, it, it's, uh, it, it, your suggestions are, make sense. Um, because you know, that, that is something that, um, you know, it's a supply and demand thing. And I think right. that that's one of the things on the racing side that, the tracks just don't seem to be coming to grip with is that um, if your your supply of horses is is lessened, then you can't just keep racing the same schedule. You're going to have to do something and think a little bit out of the box. Um, and uh, I I was I've been a proponent of um, Sal Sinatra did a uh, presentation last year at the Jockey Club Roundtable about an alternate to claiming races having. Um, a handicap system of sorts implemented so that, uh, and this was one of his, his reasonings was that the smaller breeders, it costs a lot of money to get a horse um, from, as you can, I'm sure can tell us from uh, breeding the mare to having the foal, to raising the foal, to breaking, you know, having the foal go off to early training, to having the horse go to a, a trainer from A to Z. It's expensive to get a horse from that point. And for the smaller, you know, the people that are breeding to $5,000 stallions and to have, you know, $20,000 broodmares, they may not be able to always compete at the, the maiden special level at, at the high, the bigger tracks because obviously they're going to be competing against the cream of the crop type horses. So, you know, one of his theories was that 
uh, even if those horses can break their maiden in a state bred race per se, that not having to put them in for a tag immediately and potentially losing money um, right off the bat with a horse. Uh, and, and, you know, when you do raise your own horses, I mean, certainly there's probably more uh, of an attachment to them than if you just, uh, you know, bought them at auction or claimed them. But, um, you know, one of his theories is that, you know, people will have a chance to compete uh, campaign their horse without risking them for a tag and, and also to have them be in races where they're they're competitive because you would have a handicap system where you would have uh, X amount of horses of like ability. You wouldn't be have to worry about a guy dropping a horse down in claiming class or uh, having right. to run against uh, you know, a horse that just broke its maiden by 15 lengths. So uh, I, I'm a well, proponent maybe, of that. Maybe even you, uh, you run a race for horses by stallions that the fee was less than five thousand dollars yeah right right i mean i think that there's a lot of out of the box things we we could try um i just wish that uh uh that we could get a little more uh um and and i know it's easy for us to say that because you know we're not the guys sitting there riding the races but i would just like to see a little bit more um, you know, think open-minded thinking. I mean, California did something a couple years ago about the, similar to what you just said, where I think it was horses that were bought at auction for fifty thousand or less, or a hundred thousand or less, or homebreds. Right. So no, that was. I think they had it in New York too. It was forty thousand. Uh, it was the horse was less than forty thousand or something to that number. Then they had races for that. And I thought that was a great idea. Yeah, People because like Sinatra, he's he's sharp. He's got a lot of great ideas. I mean, um, you know, they they've got to try to think outside the box. And you know, in California, they're offering a lot of incentives for travel. They're helping with uh, extra dollars you get, even if the horse gets claimed. And even though we're in, a lot of my horses are in Florida, we're looking at making that travel out there uh, because we can. It adds another, uh, you know, condition book of races that we can get into. And if we can make that travel uh, work financially and for the horse and the staff, we'll go to California and run at Del Mar or, or you know, and, and get involved in those races out there. So, you know, and there are some areas they're thinking outside the box, and I give them credit for that. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, literally – there's an incentive program that that's on your radar. Uh, a guy with sixty horses that uh, is you know wa- wants to wants his horses to be able to run, uh, and it's 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 actually you know got your attention and you're considering doing it. So obviously, that that's a program that uh, you know that seems to 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 be effective. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, we seriously are considering it, and and not for just one horse. I mean, if if we go, we we look at taking three or four horses uh, out there and be there long enough to run all of those races that, that are on their condition book um, and may stay there through the whole the entire time. So it's, it's those type things that are uh, that's getting our attention uh, to help, and it'll, it, it um, gets us in races. It fills, fills the card for them. Absolutely. Uh, let me ask you about, about your horse's um... – how many broodmares do you have approximately? Right now, I have three broodmares. Mm-hmm. So, so are I they? Had in, a few more, but 
you know, uh, it's just down a little bit right now. Are they in Florida or Kentucky or somewhere else? Uh, they Well, one uh, I've had in New York, and the others are in Kentucky. So uh, I started breeding uh, in New York because the, uh, the, the New York program is so good. Yeah, it, it it's a very good program. There's a there's a lot of depth to the racing program in New York as well, and that yeah. um, you know as long as the Finger Lakes stays open, hopefully they can they can find yeah. some more horses to run there. But yeah. uh, but they've done a good job there. I mean, I, I, I own a lot of New York reds, and I'm I, I'm breeding in New York, and I I think the um, the, the purses are uh, substantially better than anywhere else in the country, and that's why we'll we'll have a lot of horses up in New York. No, it makes sense uh, for sure. For sure, that program has really grown like exponentially. I, I remember when I was a kid, um, they they by law they were always required to run one New York bred race a day, and they didn't have a whole lot of variety of races way back then. And the the kind of the old. Uh, trick was that they the, they wanted to run second and third all the time so that they wouldn't you know lose their condition <laughs> because then they had to run against yeah. open horses so you'd see yeah. these new york breads with you know 19 starts one win seven seconds and four thirds you know it's like well, oh they've got a lot of they've got a lot of great uh new york uh, stakes races I, I mean you know um city man won two of those races up there when he was a two-year-old he'd already paid for himself after two races so, um, and he, they've got a big uh, day coming up uh, Memorial Weekend with just New York bred races. So that's a great, it's a great program. And that, that's exactly why um, I've probably got, you know, eight or 10 New York bred. Yeah, that's, it's a good program for sure. I mean, it's, uh, it certainly has grown into a, 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 a you know, it's, it, there's no stigma attached to New York breds anymore either it used to be no. when new york bridge ran against the big boys it would be uh, you know he's a pretty good horse but he's still in new york bread and i think funny side really kind of worked to to knock that out and and now um i you know you see new york breads winning all over the place and you don't even consider that they're, that they're you know they're not considered lesser horses because of new york breads and, and that's a a testament to uh you know to the to the job they've done developing that program and uh you know, it's it's like you said, it's got it it it's attracted you to uh to breed there, which which of course uh you know means it, it must be working. Um let me ask you a question about your, your philosophy. You buy more horses um that are already raced, it seems like, than um unraced young young horses. Um has your philosophy changed in I mean have you did you do it differently when you first got into this business? I think it's it's adjusted a little bit um, because buying some of the horses off the track has gotten very expensive and difficult. Um, it's it is a it's I like it as a good um, philosophy. It's worked well for me, but it's gotten very expensive. Uh, so we've we've gone back to um, yearlings and even weanlings to try to get. Uh, some weanlings that we don't have to quite pay as much for. Um, you know, we got them. And we're having, you know, we're, we're not buying tappets. I mean, we, we got a nice Mark Gillespie's name's Isolate that we bought. We paid a lot for him as a weanling, but um, 
you know, he's, he's paid for himself and it's going to be a nice horse for us. So we've had to adjust um, buying uh, off the track, although I'd say every day I'm looking at horses that have won somewhere or getting some, some information on some of them. Uh, you know, it was funny, Rombauer, we looked back at that. We had talked about that horse back uh, last July uh, and had looked at his first race and didn't realize that the timing was off. Uh, and when we got the buyer number, it was a 48. And we said, well, geez, that's, that's way too slow. But it didn't look like it on the track when, mm-hmm. he, when he made up all the time. So the horse being out in California, uh, we just we didn't pursue it. Uh, or maybe you'd be talking to the guy that won the Preakness. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, so that one slipped through the crack. But we're, we're still checking those every day. But it's very difficult because the horse breaks its maiden, and then the price just goes skyrocket. So it's, it's tough. Yeah, it's like uh, any any good plan always gets copycatted, right? I mean, you come up with a good idea, and um, everyone else is gonna is gonna try to steal your idea. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it's just the way it is. It, it's kind of um, you know the way it's gone with thoroughbreds uh, buying horses, like you said, when when horses break their maidens, if they're not owned by a Stone Street or someone, and, and even those big outfits are are selling pieces of horses off because of, you know, I, I always said, Mr. Reese, when, when your horse hits the top of the stretch, uh, the excitement that you get, it doesn't vary depending on how much of the horse you own, right? <laughs> like if you right. own 50% of the horse or you own 75% of the horse, you own 25% of the horse, you know, you root just as hard. Oh, there's no question about it. I'm, I mean, and I really, whether it's a claiming race or a stake race, I'm, I'm rooting just as hard. <laughs> um, so anytime you can get a win in this business, and, and I think that, that owners are sort of, um, we're, we're really, even though we're not connected, we're all connected because we realize how tough it is to win some of these races, especially uh, stakes races and so forth. And so I'm happy for any owner that wins. I've got a lot of friends that are owners. I pull for them just like they do for me because at the end of the day, we're going to win our races at some point. It may not have been that day, and I'm happy for that owner at that point, uh, and I know he'll he'll be happy for me when my day comes. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's almost like a, a, a small fraternity of brothers that, um, uh, you know, deep down we want to win and we want to beat that guy, but we all realize the business can be really tough. You can have that good horse. Um, something can happen. You can miss a big race. So when when you win, you just got to be happy for everybody because uh, it's it's tough. You know, it's so funny that um, you know sometimes 